You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to the 602 Club, Trek FM's local watering hole. So excited to be here tonight as we have hit episode 250 and we have a very special episode. Um, I'm going to say this right up front. I'm blaming Nick Anastasio for this episode. Uh, He asked for it, so we're giving it to him and um, I don't know. Should uh, I? I feel like I should just never say never again about things because <laughs> you just never know what's going to happen. Um, but back with us for episode two fifty is Christy. Christy, how's it going? Well, I asked for a dry martini, but they gave me wheatgrass, so it's not great. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, did they get your uh, order right there, John? John Champions with us, so well it stirred, not shaken. So yes. And by the way, did you wink at the camera when you said "never say never again"? I, I didn't notice, even though we can see each other. But I hope that in our chat, that the camera just like pushed in on you and you gave a big, broad wink to the camera when you said "never say never I again." I did. I did. <laughs> I thought I. Okay, I am surprised you missed it because I thought I, it had caused some swooning with you. I don't know if you were throwing up instead. I couldn't tell. We're just trying to paint a visual picture for our audience, you know? Uh, Really, that's what it is. But we are excited to be here because we are going to be covering probably for a while because until No Time to Die comes out, uh, this will be the last Bond movie for a while. And so we're excited to get to Never Say Never Again. Just a little background. This comes out at the same time as Octopussy, so we may have to do a little comparison to see which one we think is better. So before we get there, though, I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, Make sure you check us out uh, wherever you get your podcasts. You can find the 602 Club. Make sure you're subscribed. And uh, while you're over, maybe on Apple Podcasts or uh, iTunes, give us a star rating review. Let people know what you think of the show. Uh, We read your reviews uh, also on the show. So uh, anytime you spend some time and give us a star rating review there and your written review, uh, we let people know what you thought. So you can also find us, uh, like I said, anywhere podcasts can be had, whether it's Spotify or any of the places where you get podcasts, any podcatcher, you'll find it. Uh, you can also find us online at trek.fm. We're on Twitter at trek.fm. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Uh, and uh, maybe, you know, you think, I would love to talk to other listeners about what's going on on the Trek.fm shows. Well, you can do that at the Babel Conference. Um, type Babel into the search field there on Facebook or on the website at trek.fm. Any of the show pages, hit a button that says discussion. That'll leave you over there as well. And then maybe you have extra thoughts and you would like to share them privately with Christy and I, you can do that over at trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 club. And that comes to Christy and I. So we'd always talked about this idea in our bond shows of like continuing bond. Cause we just kept continuing the same character, but this one's very different because this really is all about Kevin McClory getting his bond. Like he finally gets 
to do his Bond movie. And so I thought it'd be interesting kind of just kind of talking through a little bit of this. We've talked about some of it in of the episodes, but you know, this was such a long, arduous process for everybody involved from the Eon Productions and, and uh, you know, the, the Broccoli side to the Fleming side to there. It's, it's just such a mess. Um, and so this has been something that was following the controversy of like from 1961. This movie comes out in 1983. So this is a long time coming that we would finally get this bond. And so, um, I, I don't know, John, I was just interested in, in your thought process of this because I know that you're such a, a historian of this time period. And like, why would you even, I'm always wondering, why would Kevin McClory at this point even want to make this movie by the time you get to 83? <laughs> well, I mean, a number of things went through my head. And, and I guess the main thing is that if you're a part of a worldwide cultural phenomenon, even if you have just one tiny little slice of it. And Matt, you might be able to fill in the backstory here a little better than my understanding, but I know that McClory and Fleming uh, have been working on this story prior to the book, yes. Thunderball. Mm -hmm. So th this was the story for a movie, and then the movie became something else, and then the book sort of uh, fed into that, that ultimate screenplay fed into the book. But here you have this early genesis of the screen bond. And at a certain point, McClory's out. But all these elements that he developed go into what would be Thunderball. And, and honestly, what would be James Bond overall. So the court sides with him, says, yes, you, you do have a claim to some of this story, to some of the elements you created for Thunderball. And I guess I, I think, okay, if I were in his shoes... And a court had said, well, you own this little piece of bond. You can go make your own. I mean, on a certain level, you look at it and go, well, this is – this surefire will have an audience. It may not be as big as the other bond, but it will definitely have an audience of some sort. Like if somebody came to you, Matt, and said, hey, you own, you own the rights to not all of Star Wars, but you own the rights to, say – Boba Fett, because you came up with Boba Fett. Now, you can go do whatever you want to with that character, and, and he belongs in the Star Wars universe. Now, you get to go make your own movie. And if it took you 20 years to do it, seeing as how Star Wars has only become a bigger and bigger phenomenon, then maybe you're going to go ahead and risk it, because the potential rewards are pretty huge. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what else did Kevin McClory have going on uh, that would have been his own standalone, completely 100% self-owned character. Well, none that we know of. So I guess why, why not just go ahead and do it? Just go ahead and make the movie because, look, somebody's going to go see it. Yeah. The name recognition well, is there. Well, and apparently, like, I was surprised to hear as well that Thunderball was based on a screenplay that Jack Whittingham did before that. So it was like they were all der deriving from each other. So eventually the court had to decide what yeah. was whose. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a really tangled web. Yeah. And one of the interesting things that I, I thought was uh, just, it's fascinating to me. So 
you know, they, they really start working on this um, in the 70s. McClory, he, he, he kind of runs into some issues and, and they do the Thunderball movie and everything. Um, and he had to wait 10 years uh, from when the movie was produced. So by mid-70s, he picks this back up and they run into restrictions because their their project is going beyond the copyright restrictions that they have from Eon Productions version of Bond. And so, you know, like I think you're, you're you know, uh, created a good scenario. Like what if I owned Boba Fett? You know, Boba Fett fits inside the Star Wars universe. He he's not somebody outside the Star Wars universe. You know, and so like with all the restrictions that would probably be on me as a person to what I could and couldn't do inside the Star Wars universe because of the things I wouldn't own. Then it, it this this kind of you kind of run into that a little bit with Bond, especially when as we get into this movie. I think some of the things we probably mention that make it feel not quite as much like Bond or some of the things that we've come to associate with the character. Yeah. Like music or, you know, certain phrases or, you know, um, the, the type, uh, the, the characters or just a lot of things that we kind of associate. They, they can't quite do. They'll kind of move around a little bit, you know, um, or they'll find their way of doing it, but it's just like it's it's almost like um it's like Dr. Pibb versus Dr. Pepper. <laughs> you know? Um and as my wife likes to quote from Hell or High Water when he's like he asks his brother for uh, Dr. Pepper and he throws him a Dr. Pibb when he comes back. And he's like, what kind of a-hole drinks Mr. Pibb? <laughs> That's my wife's favorite line because she loves Dr. Pepper. But it's kind of that thing. Like, if you want Dr. Pepper, you want Dr. Pepper. You don't want Mr. Pibb because it does not taste the same. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like, uh, you know, Bond in the, in many ways is kind of like Coke versus New Coke, you know. Or you Cola the real versus thing, baby. Coke. Uh-huh. Yeah, you, right. you well, and, and imagine this. Imagine you're Kevin McClory in that period where, okay, it's 1975. You can go ahead with uh, really in earnest developing your Bond picture. And every time you go knock on a door of another studio head or a writer or a producer, hey, guess what? I'm making a Bond film. And, and people's first reaction is, oh, great. Cubby Broccoli, Eon, what's your connection there? What do you make? I would love to work on the next Bond film. And he's going to go, no, no, it's it's not that. And then they say, oh, okay, but we're still going to have the music as you have the rights. No, no, we we, we don't have the Mm -hmm. rights to that either. Oh, okay, but you're going to have all the familiar tropes of Bond. Well, we have to reinvent some things, but it's a Bond picture, I promise you. The character's name is James Bond. I can imagine the character's name is James Bond, (laughs) yes. I, I would imagine that there was some very long, maybe very uncomfortable conversations about that. And I would love to know how many people kind of passed on the opportunity. Like, I, I'm sure that there are a number, and, and uh, obviously just from seeing the trivia on this film, there are a number of people who wanted to be associated with this because it was Bond and because it was Connery. But I imagine there are other people who kind of looked at this proposal and went, huh? Wait, I I, I know who's producing James Bond movies, this this is not it. Yeah, and isn't Why Roger do I want to be James in this? Bond now? Right, like, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I think you just brought up something that's perfect to kind of pivot here is that, you know, so to do that, to, to get people interested, their hook had to be that this was going to be Bond. 
So they get Sean to be back, who, you know, uh, said he would never be Bond again, and that's where the title comes from, of somebody's wife saying, maybe you should go with Never Say Never Again, because, you know, Sean Connery said he'd, he'd never be Bond again. Um, it was his and, wife. And... Yeah, it's his wife. Uh, you're right. So, um, it, it, which is funny. But so, how do we feel about Bond being back with it being Sean and his performance? And uh, how does he do, especially since the last time we saw him, I don't think any of us were fans of Diamonds Are Forever. So I think that um, John said it best once when he said, I think that he did the best with what he had. <laughs> Um, it, to me, I feel like Sean Connery can do no it's like wrong. Like being at a middle aged health club, we did the best we could with what we right. had to work with. You know, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, Sean Connery can do no wrong in my eyes, anyway. But I think that he did the best he could with what he had, um, especially from the get go, being involved in the writing and everything as well, and trying to get people that he wanted, and then you know, people saying, "Well, I feel an, an allegiance to Cubby Broccoli, so I can't help you," being an issue. Um, but I think that he really still it, it was fitting since he was in Thunderball to then come to this companion one, never say never again. Um, and it was good that they had him because I think if it had been either a completely new actor to Bond um, or had been um, somebody like Pierce Brosnan or something like that, that it, it wouldn't have worked as well as it did. But, you know, we'll get to that later as far as our readings go. Yeah, I, I don't want to jump too far ahead here, but I, I think I might be tipping my hand when I just try to sum up his performance. Like, there are many good things about seeing Sean Connery as Bond in this. Uh, and there, there's a sense of consistency and sort of going home again. Like, you, you welcome the whole idea that, oh, well, this is the, the actor that I watched in all of those movies that I loved. And clearly he knows how to play that role the way that he interprets the role, you know, um, he looks good. I won't say that he looks amazing. I was, it was a little weird. I was trying to remember, uh, and I had to go back and look at IMDb. He was 52 yep. when they made this movie. And I remember at the time, and even before watching it again for our show here, just thinking like he is a way older guy playing Bond. Now, he was three years younger than Roger Moore, <laughs> you know, which is interesting. But I also think about actors who are in their early 50s now, and I, I look at a guy like George Clooney, and I go, oh, okay, well, yeah, I would totally buy him as uh, an action-adventure hero, the lead of a movie like that, no problem at all. But I had a more difficult time this time around buying Connery as Bond. And they sort of play with that in the movie. Um making him go to the health spa and just talking about how he sort of let himself go. And, you know, there's a few Body scenes by caviar. where... <laughs> right. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and there's a few scenes where physically he looks great and a few scenes where he doesn't. And that, that that's not to cast dispersions. Look, we all age in different ways. Uh, no, you take that but back. It, there was this... <laughs> I said, no, that? you take that back. What? <laughs> <laughs> um... But but I will say this, like, aside from that, just sort of being happy to see Connery as Bond, but also trying to, to sort of reconcile 
this older version of Connery, which again, let's face it, we're looking at this movie more than 30 years after it came out. So we're talking about, you know, decades longer than the gap that he had actually playing Bond. You know, see, he was only, what, 12 years out from having played Bond the last Mm -hmm. time when we got to see him around for, for Never Say Never. But there were... There were things about this, and and, and you said it, uh, doing the best that he can with the material that he has. I don't think the material is great. I know we're going to get to that, and we'll do a deep dive there. But there were moments that I wanted this Connery Bond to have a really personal connection with the material, with, with the scene, with the moment, with the other actor. And the three of us all said it when we were watching the Roger Moore Bond movies, that as off the rails as those movies went, sometimes, sometimes they didn't, but it's memorable when they did, Roger Moore was always doing the best he could to keep it grounded and, and to at least be present in the mm-hmm. scene. And there, there are crazy, extreme, nuts things happening in Roger Moore Bond movies but you give the guy a moment, you give him a chance, and he's got a real connection to the other actor on screen. Or there, there's a real sense of danger that he'll bring in, even into a sequence that feels silly and over the top. I missed that here. Because I felt like from the beginning, Connery was sort of... He was playing the version of Bond that the stereotype is about the Roger Moore Bond. Which is sort of, you know, unaffected, uh, kind of just walking through it, having fun. No real danger is going to come to him. He's sort of above it all. Um, and, and you're really not too concerned that at the end of the day, he's going to mm-hmm. win. That he'll be all right. And... Connery is not served by a lot of the other people in this movie where he could really have a moment where he really could have uh, a genuine connection with somebody on the screen. And, and one of you might be able to, to remind me, I, I was thinking, I was trying to remember specific moments and, and I, I know it's been a while since I've watched now all the Roger Moore movies back to back. But there are times when Moore is say, explaining to another character, this is what I do. It's dangerous. It's a bad business. People get killed. And even though it might be in kind of a silly movie, all it takes is a moment for more to totally ground mm-hmm. it. And, and I so wish that I got that here. Yeah, I feel like for your eyes only is kind of the one of those moments, I, you know, when he's yeah. talking about some yep. of the more serious and that that they take that as a more serious Bond movie anyway. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's one of those. I, I feel like Roger Moore kind of gives you performance and a, a bit more grit that you then you're expecting is, is what you've come to expect from his movies at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I even felt like, you know, they're, they're so concerned with sort of playing with the stereotypes in this movie that even from the beginning, uh, when he goes into M's office, like it's always a fine line in scenes with Bond and M, uh, except for the Daniel Craig movies and and maybe uh, definitely moments in the Pierce Brosnan movies 
where there is a real power play there and and they are sort of putting each other into their places uh but you go back to the connery films you go back to the moore films and yes there's some fun to be had with the m scenes but from the very beginning of this i just feel like connery walks into m's office and he's kind of got a smirk on his face like uh, th- this is the perfunctory thing that i do with him and M is sort of a fool, so I'll just be cooler than that and then go on with the story. Like, he's the bad kid <laughs> at know? school. Like, I don't have to respect this guy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a really tricky thing because, you know, the, the other Bonds have had those moments, but those moments mm-hmm. are earned. Um, and, and I felt like it was a mistake here. Uh, God, I, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm totally jumping ahead on everything. I feel like it was a mistake here to play M the way that they did because it undermined uh, so much else that was happening in the movie. Yeah, the thing that was so interesting about watching this movie is that Sean Connery looks better than he did when he was in Diamonds Are Forever. Like, much yeah. better. He, yeah. he, he looks yeah. like a much more vibrant, alive person. Uh, he looks more like he could be an aging double agent. Um, which was great that this is, uh, you know, one of the things Nick pointed out to me, which I thought was really neat, is to see is this the first time that they use Bond's age as a part of the story um, and that, you know, that idea of like maybe th- this is um, this is a whole, you know, group of people, the double O's that we don't might not want to use anymore. You know, like maybe they're going out of fashion. Maybe we don't need them, you know. And so what's mm-hmm. fascinating is that a lot of the story that they've they've concocted for the movie, uh, especially that kind of personal stakes, if they had taken this in a serious route, this movie would have been much better um, instead of like you said, John, every moment they're they're playing with the cliche of Bond instead of trying to actually do their own thing with Bond, which is yeah. what we see happen then when you get to, you know, Craig's Bond, where they're like, you know what, we're gonna reboot this and we're gonna we're gonna go in a very serious, very grounded way. And that's where they could have gone, I think, with this if they had wanted to. And they could have really added something to the character of Bond. And they do in the sense that, again, they use his age as a story point. But his age and who he is, you know, basically, like I said, when I made the joke about Body by Caviar, that's it's played off as a joke. And this is one of those things where, you know, I, I blame movies these days where they take everything serious and they make it a joke. And it doesn't mm-hmm. allow you to really rest in the moment of the seriousness and the nature of that. And like you said, part of his, his interaction with other characters around him really hurts that as well because nobody is taking this seriously. And I think that's kind of the thing. Like, as crazy as those James Bond movies are with Roger Moore, Moore seems to be taking it rather seriously. Like him as a character, you mm-hmm. know, the actor. Um, and he's he's kind of um, our, our center for everything. And everything else can be going crazy, but he's created a center. But nobody, not even Sean, is really taking this necessarily very seriously. Look, I mean, it, we mentioned Octopussy right off the bat. And, and people love to trash that scene at the end of Octopussy where they're at the circus. Bond is in the clown makeup. 
and it, it, it's silly and demeaning for Bond. But here's the thing. The expression on Roger Moore's face under that makeup saying there's a bomb in there. It, not only does he play it seriously, not only does he, he have precisely the right inflection for that, but I actually think that raises the stakes in that scene because who's going to take him seriously? He's gotten himself into the worst possible position uh, trying to go undercover, but then trying to save the day and trying to convince other people what's going on. I actually, look, I don't think it's a great scene, but it's another example of Roger Moore doing the absolute best with what he's handed. Mm -hmm. um, and the look in his eyes, the expression on his face, I think he absolutely sells it. Um, similarly, in Octopussy, Moore and Maud Adams have some great connected character moments in that. Um, and, it, and it's not just sort of about the, the romance uh, it's about their respect for each other that you see develop in the course of the movie. And uh, that's a big element of what's missing and never say well, never. I will say, though, with one exception, um, I get what you're saying, but I do feel like the scenes with Connery and Kim Basinger actually are that piece that we're missing from the rest of it where you have that one-on-one -on -one real relationship building um, and feeding off of each other's energy. Uh, I think that those went really well. And I really love the scene at the end when she says, Bond, you'll never change. And he actually says, you know, like, well, actually, I'm thinking about giving it up. And I, you know, I, this was the first time I've ever seen this one. So I was surprised to hear that. Uh -huh. Ah, but I will say I feel like, you know, the, yeah. the rest of the time there were moments I felt like he was kind of going through the motions and was and, and it was kind of like he didn't want to be there. But I still love him anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard not. It, that's the thing. It's hard to not want Connery to be yeah. there, you know, and, and just accept and enjoy the idea of him playing Bond again. And, and that's really what this movie rests on. It's just the audience wanting and accepting Sean Connery as James Bond. And I agree with you that he has some really good moments with uh, Kim Basinger. Um, I, it was a little hard for me to take that, uh, that she sort of flips as fast as she does, um, just sort of accepting this new reality when this, you know, middle-aged guy 30 years older than her shows up and is like uh, okay let me tell you about your boyfriend he's a killer he's dangerous he's terrible i'm here to help you it's like whoa, whoa, whoa and then she just kind of they they have some moments where i bought it after mm -hmm. the fact uh but in the moment uh, you know but that that that's really more of a screenplay yeah. thing you know how are you going to sell the idea that uh that just whatever he says flips her and changes her loyalty because she sells it really well with um, uh, Largo. Mm -hmm. You know, she, she sells it well with Maximilian at first, like when he first gives her the, uh, the tears of Allah and I, you feel like, Oh, okay, well it, it might be weird and creepy, but <laughs> this is her guy. Yeah. No, I, and I, I did feel like um, with the writing, the massage scene was terrible. And and unnecessary oh, yes. and made me feel gross. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
I'm glad you said that. Can you get that I spot agree. just a little, little lower? Yeah, really there low. You <laughs> there you go. There you go. Okay, that's thank you. Um, yeah. So that's something I want to ask you about. This is a the Thunderball redo, and so and and much of the story is similar to Thunderball. And so, is this you know, if we're going to redo a story, is it better or worse? Because I mean, in the end, that's really what uh, you you can't not compare it. Um, and so how did you guys feel about this version of the story of Thunderball? Uh, I will say I liked this version a little better just because I felt like there weren't as many underwater scenes. And that's like my biggest pet peeve. Although there, there can be cool moments underwater. It's so hard to get across well on film when you're filming underwater. <laughs> um, and the lighting and everything, it's just bad. Um, but they, there were so many similarities between the two. I mean, I think that the one other thing I took away that was a, a big difference was what they did as far as how they got access to the missiles. Um, I like that in this one they used uh, a replica contact of the president's retina rather than the whole face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I thought actually for a movie that's over two hours long, thought the pacing was all right. And uh, Thunderball does suffer, particularly because of those underwater scenes, with some real drag places in there where you're just sort of like losing focus of like, who's who's where? Who are we watching? Because they're all wearing here? wetsuits and we can't um, tell. Because <laughs> they're all wearing wetsuits, exactly. Um, so uh, this movie actually solves some of that and, and improves the pacing a bit. Uh, uh, there, there are enough new elements that even if the plot line is not fresh, uh, going to some new locations made it feel fresher. So I can't fault them for that. Look, I, I have said before on Mission Log and and pretty much wherever people will listen to me, I, I'm never against a remake. You, you know, I, I think that as long as something is done with some integrity and creativity then things get reinvented and remade all the time. I mean, we would not be talking about Shakespeare now if those plays just lived and died 500 years ago uh, and and that was it. You know, stories need to get retold, reinvented. I think that's fine. But in a case like Never Say Never Again remaking Thunderball, well, the, there are, there's a lot of problematic stuff that comes along with it. Yeah, and one of the things you you mentioned the the whole storyline about Kim Basinger's character kind of flipping uh, domino flips very quickly, and I feel like in the original Thunderball they do a much better job of showing her really having this relationship with her brother, you know, and so when she finds out her brother's been murdered, you feel like it makes more sense for her to kind of flip. Whereas I didn't feel like they didn't doubt with the Kim Basinger character as well, you know, playing domino. The other problem with doing this movie is they do not do a good job of telling you where you're going in the movie. Yeah. At least I found, like, I'm like, I didn't, when we move from, uh, and I had to look this up, we move from the Bahamas to Nice, France. I'm like, what, we're all of a sudden in Nice now? Like, I didn't realize we were in France, but everybody's. Yeah, exactly. And then and then the other part of it too is that the the clarity of what they're trying to do with the nuclear weapons 
is never clear in the story. I, I'm feeling like they, they're trying to blow up some sort of oil access thing, maybe mm-hmm. in North Africa, but where they are in North Africa and maybe how close they are to actual oil fields in North Africa or, you know, why wouldn't you be in the Middle East at this point if you're trying to do that? Like, there were structural issues with just the basic storyline that I was left questioning, whereas in the original Thunderbolt, I wasn't. Um, I, Christy, you're right, and I think they, they do improve on the idea. They don't, they're not enamored with themselves underwater. And so they don't do as much of that, which helps. So when they are underwater, it's, it's kind of minimal in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was great. So it, it really becomes kind of a mixed bag in that, you know, John, I think you rightly pointed out a lot of the areas where they, they help themselves. But I also feel like the, it, for every time they've helped themselves, they've also hurt themselves in some way. And so it's it's just, and I think that's kind of the problem of they're they're basically hamstrung in what they can do and what they can't do because there's only so much they can do with the character of Bond. They 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 don't they they don't have carte blanche that they need with the character. So a lot of these issues I'm kind of wondering if they they just like oh well we can't really get too specific about this here because then that breaks copyright, you know, uh, like right. I don't know if that's the issue but maybe it is and that's why some things just feel so nebulous. But it is interesting that in both films they go to the Bahamas. <laughs> it's like, so that wasn't a problem? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, it's um well and and then too, I had a I had a the question came up because this came comes up at the same year is is Octopussy, and I don't know which one of these is better or worse. I feel like this is slightly better than Octopussy, but I can't say that it's a vast improvement, and mainly because this movie lacked any, this movie just lacked pizzazz. Mm-hmm. Like it, uh, you know, as a Thunderball redo, um, Thunderball has all the underwater stuff, but there's just something about Eon's productions of Bond and the kind of like grandioseness to it. And this kind of felt like it just lacked a lot of that. Um, I, I just, it didn't feel, um, I don't know. I just wasn't, I don't feel it like I do with their movies, even a movie like one of the worst Roger Moore movies, Octopussy. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a tough thing to put your fingers on because they spent a lot of money on Never Say Never, just as they spend a lot of money on Octopussy. I think Octopussy spent a little bit more, but it, it outperformed Never Say Never at the box office. And it, it, it's an intangible thing. You know, they both have good locations. They both have good actors. Um, but there is something about the polish, the veneer of the whole thing, where Never Say Never feels a little pedestrian. Um, whereas Octopussy, we, you know, where Octopussy fails, it's because they went too over the top and we're, we're all grateful for the moments where they reel it back in a little bit. And, and again, props to Roger Moore for playing it straight when he needs to. Um, but they also allow sort of 
every idea that they had that they throw at the wall, they just say, well, it's all going to stick. <laughs> so we'll go with the silly stuff, like the double take uh, with the, uh, the the tiger, the sit, you know, with the stuff like that, dumb stuff like that. And we'll keep that in there with the really interesting character stuff and a, you know, somewhat interesting plot line about, um, uh, you know, the, the Russian jewels and fueling the technology to, you know, get the, uh, or fueling the, the, um, smuggling in order to get the weapon, etc. So that there was some decent intrigue there. Um, and there was decent intrigue in Never Say Never, but it's just lacking a, um, it's almost lacking like a kind of professionalism. It's almost like it's the TV movie version of a Bond mm -hmm. movie, even though they had the money, even though they had the actors. Um, and there are a lot of good actors in there. I'm sure that we'll go, you know, bit by bit and talk about them. I will add, I think that maybe the reason too, that it feels that way. I agree with both of you about um, this one. I feel like is a little bit, better than Octopussy, but I also was, you know, I feel like they both have their drawbacks in similar ways, uh, other than what you're saying, John, where it feels like Octopussy went too grandiose, and then this one went too far the other way. Um, but they both had that issue with like going to a lot of locations and not always being clear why or where you're going. Um, but I think that this one um, possibly had the issues because they didn't focus as much on Blofeld. Um, I think that maybe it could have been better served um, making you feel that tension more and more concern about the situation if they had done that, because you just don't feel like there is any real threat here. Um, and then also, I felt like it just, even though the actors were good, that the locations didn't make it better. And I, I think that maybe the music was what was missing as well because there was so much that they couldn't oh. use that we characterize with bond i think would have added so much more to making those locations come to life oh we have to talk about that yeah, yeah let's talk about <laughs> because it. yeah um apparently connery decided that he wanted michel legrand as the composer and the production had approached John Barry, but he, he rightfully said like, and I wouldn't feel right mm -hmm. doing that and also doing the quote unquote real bond movies. Um, and I, I do not, um, I do not dislike Michel Legrand. He, he's done some great soundtracks. Uh, he did, um, Oh, uh, the, the, uh, Thomas Crown affair, the original Thomas Crown affair. Mm. Uh, and he, he's done some terrific stuff. And, and I encourage you, if you haven't gone to Apple Music and just, you know, download one of the essentials playlists of what he's written, there's a lot of good stuff in there. But he's so mismatched for this movie. Yeah. And the, the style is all over the map. Um, and none of it works. And I remember being a kid and seeing this in the theater when it first came out, because my dad was an old school Connery Bond fan, still is, and not knowing as a kid what the backstory was and why were there two Bond movies this year, didn't know, hey, great, I got to go see another Bond movie. As soon as it started, and I didn't see the gun barrel, and I didn't hear familiar Bond music, I knew that something was mm -hmm. off. I knew something was really wrong with this picture, whatever it was. And I never quite regained my footing after that terrible 
opening sequence with the terrible 007 logo and that music that is just instantly forgettable. Nobody is served by that. Um, in Octopussy, of course, we get the familiar Bond music. All Time High is not one of my favorite Bond title tracks. Ugh, no. But, yeah, I know, right? But they did a pretty good job of using instrumentals from that in the movie soundtrack, and they did an even better job of creating thematic stuff that gets played in that soundtrack uh, that is not the Bond theme and is not all-time high that is very memorable and really serves the movie. And this movie is missing all three of those. It's missing a title track that you care about or love or hate. It's just bad and bland. It's missing the Bond theme and it's missing a hook. It's missing its own thing to define this movie. Like, uh, you know, go back to the early days and you have not only the Bond theme, you have 007. And that is another bit of music that creeps up in other Bond movies. And you go, oh, yeah, that's mm -hmm. memorable. Or you take a memorable title track like Goldfinger or whatever, and you use elements of that, that music phrasing in other tracks in the movie. And you look forward to it, and it creates a tone and a mood for the movie. This is missing all of yeah. that. And it's just a disaster when it comes to I the I think music. for sure not having the um, Bond characteristic instrumental throughout the movie was missing for mm -hmm. me and makes you feel like this is like a knockoff. But I think, could they have done some kind of imagery for the opening instead of just like a cold opening into Bond on a mission? Um you know, like they mm -hmm. usually do with the silhouettes of women and things like that. Something that makes you still go, oh, yeah, that's right. This is Bond. Um, even if you yeah. can't use that music, I wonder if they were somehow legally not allowed to do that same opening. I don't know. But I know they said, you know, specifically with the gun opening, they couldn't do that. Um, yeah. I, I also felt like, like you said, that the music was just so forgettable here when you compare it to like the song for live and let die, which I love, even though I didn't love mm -hmm. that movie, I will listen to that song any mm -hmm. day. This is like bad eighties music. It just feels cheesy. Yeah. It feels dated. Um, and I think even if I had been able to see it in the theater that I would have been unimpressed. I, so like, it's just so hard because um, <laughs> listening to this, music you, you can't have the bond theme so it's like the composer thought oh well i i, I need to do something big bandish but it's just such uh, like it's the worst kitschy pseudo big band type music that does not fit the scenes at all um they didn't even try to create basically their own type of like bond music yeah and it, it 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 totally distracts from every scene that the music is being played in. It's mm -hmm. just really bad. Um, and to use kind of a um, the, the 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 technical language of soundtracks, like um, the the composer will then also kind of like Mickey Mouse too many scenes where they're like telling you the action through the music, mm -hmm. and it's just it's just. None of it is good. It is awful. And the, the theme song, obviously, at the beginning, 
if I never hear it again, it'll be too soon. <laughs> um, it, like, it's just a, never say never, Matt. Never say never. That's again. what they say. But I'm going to say never about this one because uh, it's just it's really bad. And so I think, you know, it, that's one of the things that was truly missing in this movie because music is so indelibly linked to what we think of as Bond. It would be like Star Wars without John Williams. Or Mission you Impossible know, like, without its theme. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. any, think of any of these themes um, for these characters. Well, but some sometimes that works, though. So think about, you know, Matt, when uh, we did 602 Club about the man from Uncle. Mm, and true. Uh, true. love that yep. movie. And there's so many Uncle fans who are just just furious that they didn't use the original Uncle music except for that one two-second clip on the radio. But... That soundtrack is great. Yeah, it's true. And that soundtrack creates new music that sounds of the period, that drives the action, doesn't Mickey Mouse it. Uh, so it can be done. Um, but maybe Bond is special. Yeah. Maybe Bond is something that is so indelibly linked to the, the music scape, the mm. soundscape of what Bond's world is like. Uh, they have to be, boy, you have to be really careful if you're not going to have that Monty Norman, John Barry sound. Well, part of that too with, you know, I'm thinking through the soundtrack for Uncle and it's the fact that they use music from the time that mm -hmm. is that type of music, that kind of big band, you know, you're using all those type of people and it fits mm -hmm. and, the, and the songs that they choose fit perfectly in the scenes that they're in. Yeah. Uh, so... Yeah, this this movie, it's like you almost maybe needed to do something like that where or you just needed to have a big over the top action score that wasn't trying to be James Bond, but was also but but had the, the grand epic action type music. And mm -hmm. we just we don't yeah. get either here. And so you're just kind of left with this awfulness so um <laughs> we should move on because we could probably talk about that for another 10 minutes um yes the yes. villains in this movie we have um maximilian largo uh fatima blush and ernest stavro blofeld how did you feel like these villains did in this movie especially since we've seen basically two of these characters before i mean it's not the same Largo because it's not Emilio Largo, but it's basically the same character. Um, yeah, and uh, and then our, uh, I guess, would you call this the? It's not the Bond woman, but it's the Von, Bond vixen because it's the bad female in the movie. So the femme fatale. There you go. Uh, Thank you. Of a uh, Fatima blush. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will say when I first saw her, she reminded me so much of Catherine Zeta Jones. And mm. and I love her. So I was like, yeah, I'm on board with this. Um, I think she was a, an incredible actress and perfect for being a villain. Uh, I think she was my favorite of all the villains, actually, in this movie. Um, I think that although Klaus that played Largo is a great actor, that I felt like the character wasn't written very well. I don't think it had anything to do with his performance. Um, I think that he shouldn't have been as much of the focus as he was personally, or that they should have done some more definition of why he was doing the things he was. 
um, like, for example, I felt like it was really awkward in this scene where his um, computer room door opens and he's watching his girlfriend dance. It just feels really uncomfortable. Like he's spying on, on her and she doesn't know. And at first you don't even know how they know each other. So it's even more creepy. Oh, he's just watching some woman. <laughs> um, I thought that was weird. And then I thought, you know, when Bond is trying to get get a reaction out of him by kissing her and then he's watching seemed weird. Um, I, I just think that they should have focused more on Blofeld and on uh, Blush than him. So I I mean, in my eyes, uh, Max von Sydow can do no wrong. So I thought he was a great choice for Blofeld. I wish there were more of Blofeld, more more focus on him. Um, and what a cool character to be able to kind of reinvent from movie to movie. We we all know the Donald Pleasance Blofeld. We know the Charles Gray Blofeld. Now we know the Christoph Waltz Blofeld. Telly Savalas cool Blofeld, the best Telly Blofeld. Telly Savalas Blofeld. <laughs> How could you forget, John? And the cat. <laughs> At the end, and he got the cat. So, you know, that this was all cool. It, clearly, that's uh, one of the things in the Kevin McClory uh, lawsuit that, you know, I came up with the cat. All right, so you get to have the cat <laughs> in the movie. Um, so uh, he was cool. And I I really like Klaus Meyer Brandar as uh, Largo. Now, I, I do agree with you that there's – there's something missing about the character. We don't really know what he's getting out of it. We don't really know where he's coming from. Um, they certainly sell the creepiness with him watching his girlfriend dance through the, uh, the, the two way mirror there. Um, he has such a great, I, I remember from the first time I saw it, such a great uh, delivery when uh, she says it, they, they get up to the castle and she says, you're crazy. Yep. Yeah, Maybe. I remember that. <laughs> you know, he's he's great at at doing the job that a Bond villain sometimes needs to do, which is to be charming and also be really scary. Uh, and he's also having a good time with it too. He's just his physicality is really interesting to watch. Um, I think he would have been perfectly great in a quote unquote real Bond movie as a villain. And maybe you tighten up the character stuff a little bit, tighten up the backstory a little bit. And I think he could be one of the all-time great uh, Bond villains. Fatima Blush. Wow. Just wow. I, uh, Man, she can walk through a scene. It just, it, it, talk about the physicality of a character. All you need to do is just have the camera on and tell her to walk from point A to point B and she owns that absolutely, scene. Uh, and and is clearly just having a great time with it, and and also can be menacing. Um, I didn't. I, I guess you know when I was however old I was, uh, uh, eleven, uh, ten or eleven, seeing this movie for the first time. I, I missed the thing about her feeding Jack's heroin addiction, uh, but even at the time, I just thought. She's terrifying because she's abusive to him, but she's also hot, but she's also packing these syringes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like uh, all of this weird stuff about her. Um, I think she's fabulous, you know, and, and in a movie where there's so much that's going over the top, 
uh, her sort of brand of over the top is consistent and somehow believable because Barbara Carrera is just chewing the scenery at every bit and, and finding every bit of nuance in every scene that she's in. Um, hard to say that it's necessarily believable, but we were sort of dealing with a comic book character. Uh, it's just sort of one of the all-time great comic book character villains that she brings to life. The it, it's interesting because I think uh, both Klaus and and Max von Sydow are, are serviceable in their roles. You know, he doesn't have a lot to do anyway. Max von Sydow, he he's barely yeah. in the movie, and um, it's disappointing that you have a character actor of that quality, then he barely has anything to do. Um, I, Guerrera is the one who is, like you said, he was just all over the place. Like she's just, she, what, what I realized is that she's the original Xenia on a top. Yeah. You know, that, yes. that super <laughs> yes. psycho femme fatale. She honestly gets yeah. off on her job. Like she kissed him and um, then threw is, a snake at him. <laughs> yeah. Which is creepy. Um, and so, you know, I, I appreciate that. Um, I will say maybe one of the most awkward uh, intimate scenes between her and Bond ever filmed. Yeah. It's, it's just so weird and, oh, yeah. and and the editing in that scene is awful um everything about it is awful <laughs> it is. although it was it's hilarious totally that it's like the boat slides to one side and then suddenly they're diving under the yeah. water yeah uh, oh yeah it's um yeah. anyway but so so what was interesting was the fact that they actually i think in the other james bond movies you know in in uh, goldeneye we kind of get a character like this again um, in in Zenia on a top, so it was interesting to see kind of maybe they're they're looking at that, and then they use that idea later on in the quote unquote real Bond movie. So the only mm-hmm. thing I did not like about her as a character was the moment where she's trying to get Bond to confess that she's the best he's ever had. Yeah. Um. It, you know, yeah. and um. So uh. Oh, I, I was uncomfortable then, and I was uncomfortable now in that scene. Yeah. It, it, it makes zero sense. Well, and how yeah. first she tells um, him to spread his legs. I was worried for him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kind of kind of harkens back to Goldfinger, though, where we're about to uh, remove Bond's manhood with a laser. Mm-hmm. Now it's, uh, it's uh, you know, Barbara Carrera with a gun. Uh, yeah, um... <laughs> Anyway, that whole scene was just a little bit much. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, I think the villains here are uh, most of them, at least, you know, two of them, they come straight from the original Goldfinger, come from the original uh, Thunderball story. And then, you know, they had Carrera in there and she's psycho. Uh, and it, it actually adds a little bit of liveliness to what otherwise I I think is a movie that is trying to have that kind of sense of of fun but lacks a lot of times and i think that's when we get you know to our friends section um of friends of bond whether it's you know um nigel or felix or m or q or algernon or whatever they want to call them uh or money penny you know this is the section i think that really truly lacks because most of these characters have so little to do 
that um, their screen time, you could take it away and have added it screenplay wise to somebody else more important, really, mm-hmm. to the story. And like you said, John, kind of created moments, but none of these really stick out. I mean, the only one who really sticks out is Rowan Atkinson, and it's because he's being Rowan Atkinson, which is weird. Um, <laughs> otherwise, all of these people are forgettable and or completely misplaying the character like Edward Fox's M is awful. He comes across Amen. as a doofus. Um, you know, Muddy Penny has He's absolutely so nothing bad. to do at all other than to 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 look almost like incompetent. Um, Felix has barely anything to do in in the movie, which is disappointing. I mean, it, I, for a while, I'm like, why is he even here? Um, and then he brings in, I guess, the Marines or something. But again, like. None of this is explained very well. So, uh, and then the cue that they have, I don't know. I mean, he he's looking for more gratuitous sex and violence, which this movie didn't have either. So, um, <laughs> I I felt bad for him. He was totally let down by this film. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, okay, yeah. I just uh, M is uh, that's just hot garbage. Mm-hmm. Uh, M and Q and what a waste. Um, just a huge mess right there. I will say this though. I mean, Felix, you know, kudos. We got the first, uh, African American Felix. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Right. Right. And, um, I honestly, I usually think that Bernie Casey can do no wrong. I like him in pretty much everything. He just, he's kind of a non character here. It's like, oh, well, here's the perfunctory scenes with Felix. Um, but I, I think he's cool. I think Bernie Casey is cool. So I was glad to see him whenever we could get him. Um, but yeah, man, what a what a wasted opportunity to just make M an idiot. And uh, I cringed whenever we heard his voice uh, after that. Well, from the first scene, I was just like, oh, yeah, I remember this is going to go bad. Yeah. <laughs> and then then every time that we, we saw him or heard him again, I was like, yeah, yeah, this this is Well, and awful. he just has no feel of, uh, like, gravitas to him or anything that anyone, even the audience, should respect him as M. That's what drives me crazy is because later we get Judy Dench, who you will respect her or else. <laughs> you know, and yes, so this M yes. just feels like, a fool and uh, like a bumbling idiot who, how in the world did he get this job? Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. Like how, why would he yeah. have this job? Yeah. That's the, yes. Yeah. Thank you, Christian. <laughs> and the double O's are never yeah. obsolete. So he can shut up. Um, right. <laughs> but I, I think that, um, Alec as Q was cute. Um, but they didn't give him a lot to do. I think that's kind of everyone's issue here is they just weren't given a lot to do. Um, I think that Bernie Casey really shined in the scene where he and Bond are pretending to be village people. And uh, he's acting like he's a boxer as he walks down the street. (laughs) That was really cute. Yeah. Uh, And I like Rowan Atkinson, but I was like, oh, it's Mr. Bean. (laughs) Yeah. And that's like, okay, here's the thing. I, I generally like Rowan Atkinson. I love him in Blackadder. Um, uh, Some of his stand-up stuff is just Right, right. And, and Johnny English is a bit of a mixed bag. And, and I have to say that, like, the first couple of movies, like, okay, well, there's an okay joke or two in there, but it's really over the top. And you know, you're getting that. I watched, I guess it's the third one, I, the most recent one that came out. And I had one of those sort of long 
slow, boring days where they're like, okay, well, I guess I'll watch Johnny <laughs> English now. And um, I have to tell you, I laughed out loud and so hard at the scene that he orders a drink where he's teamed up with sort of, or he's met up with the, the Russian femme fatale spy and she orders a drink and then he orders a drink and I will say no more, but watch that scene. I, I lost it. I absolutely lost it because there's a bit of playing with the Bond mythos and it's not Rowan Atkinson doing over the top physical humor. It's just a hilarious moment. So I, um, I, I had no love for him in this. I remember disliking it at the time <laughs> and I still dislike it. I like him. I think he's very mm-hmm. talented, but it's another indication that in this movie, this movie does not know what it is. And and like the worst of the Roger Moore films, the producers are saying, well, throw everything at the wall, but we're not going to edit out what doesn't stick. Right. That's a great way to put it. Um, so I have a question for you then. If Kim Basinger as our Bond woman sticks. I think she's lovely. I really do. I, I think she's not super well written. Um and I think that uh, if we had seen, if they had made more of a thing about the transition of her being Largo's girl to realizing the reality of what's going on, to really being conflicted and really being in danger, um, I would have liked her and therefore would have liked the experience even more. There are moments of that. But I think it's intertwined in so much nonsense that it's hard to just focus on that. Kim Basinger is lovely. She she plays an innocence that's really nice without coming across as helpless. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I was interested to read that she had turned down being in Bond movies before. Uh, it's kind of too bad because I would have liked to have seen her in a real Bond movie. Uh, but I, I, I don't really have much negative to say that would be her fault. You know, the, the fault of this movie is in the writing and the sort of the, the, the production coming together. Mm -hmm. So I can't pin anything that I don't like on her. I would agree with that statement as well. I think that she is really good, especially toward the end with her interactions with Bond, I do feel the connection between the two of them. Um, But I I do agree about her reaction to her brother dying and then also them never showing her and her brother together to show that they had a strong bond, um, I think is is lacking, really. And we could have felt so much more for her if we had seen something like that. Um, But I like her as a Bond girl, um, you know, as the, the heartthrob, I guess, of this movie. Um, and, and this was yeah. really at the beginning of her huge popularity because, um, I know her later from my stepmother as an alien. <laughs> I, I think they hurt themselves with the tangos. Yes. It was because just a bad scene. It, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's kind of, uh, it's kind of a movie trope anyway, that you have an important piece of dialogue in a dance, uh, because, everybody's around you the music is on uh you can't react 
the way you would normally react to bad news or something like that. So it is a trope, and I get that. There's all kinds of interesting reasons to stage something like that, but they ruined it with the opportunity here because you put Bond and Domino on doing a show, and it felt out of step. It, it, it just didn't feel like it belonged in the movie. Um, I would have much rather have seen that played more seriously. Mm-hmm. I mean, the most interesting thing happens when my you know my wife and I are watching this together, uh, and she had never seen it, and she's like, "Wow, she's she really doesn't even look like she's wearing a top there." Um, you know, are you talking and, about the see through leotard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so, what I said too. Um, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, like wow, uh, that Kim Basinger looking good. <laughs> we um, saw all of it, <laughs> and and that's really that's really all. I mean. She's here to look pretty. Um, she saves Bond's life in the end. That's nice. Um, but they really don't do a great job of of giving her a lot of character development throughout the movie, mm-hmm. and it's sad. Um, it's it's disappointing that they they don't really give her more to do because you know Kim Basinger can be great. You know, I mean, gosh, just watch LA Confidential. Um, you know, she's fabulous in that. She's fantastic. So. Uh, it, she, she looks the part. I mean, she looks like she should be a Bond woman, right? Uh, but here, they're they're not doing her any favors by giving her um any kind of meat in the role. You know, like even you mentioned an an octopusy, right? Um, Maude Adams' character of Octopussy has this great connection with Bond in that movie. You know, there are similar ages in that movie too. So you, you, there, there's something a special, love I think. That. Yeah. You, yeah. yeah, we both love that. I think, you yeah. know, we talked about yeah. that movie. That's one of the things that stands out, you know, here, um, because it happens so quickly that she turns be- because of the way that they do it with the scene with their, them dancing and everything. Um, yeah, she just doesn't really get, um, too much to do and and the scenes too where like it would have been really great for her and bond to be having the conversation of you know that she wants to kill him right and how like really get into that conversation of like will it really make her feel better you know like Mm -hmm. and 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 they they just don't um and so um i'm it's too bad that that, that's the scene that's a moment that more would have nailed yeah you know for real. Yeah, I agree. Um, so last thing I want to ask you guys before we wrap up is the fact of, you know, J- James Bond movies are known for their action. Can you remember any action sequence from this movie? I do have one. <laughs> okay. Yes, please. Uh, remind me. The motorcycle chase between Bond and Fatima Blush I thought was great. I think whoever they had to do the stunt driving on the motorcycle, he was popping wheelies. I thought it was cool. And he's going downstairs through a city. Um, and then, you know, her driving like on a top. <laughs> I, I thought that was good. But yeah, I, I do understand and agree that the rest of the movie, the action was really kind of missing. Um, and they revisited the underwater stuff. So you have that. <laughs> the um, The motorcycle chase keeps undermining itself like you introduce it early on oh look q built a motorcycle oh look they shipped you a Mm -hmm. motorcycle 
hey, we're about to have a chase. Let's open the box that the motorcycle is in. You don't have to keep telling us, basically. (laughs) Right, right. And then you finally get to it, and there's not a lot of... It's just a motorcycle. There's not a lot of Connery there. And it's just a motorcycle, and what makes... What makes that memorable is that you end up in that weird, gated, like, whatever location that is. I, I, I don't know whether the arched brick, uh, in, you know, where Bond and Fatima had their final mm-hmm. showdown. That's what makes that memorable, is that you wind up there, not the chase itself. So it, it, it's weird. It, it, it's a chase that, that keeps shooting itself in the foot. You know, trying to find find the meat of it, trying to find the substance of it. Um, and the other action, uh, I will say this, that uh, Bond and Felix launching on the XT-7B or whatever, the, the missiles that have the little uh, flight things oh, in yes. them. Uh, some hilariously bad optical effects made more hilarious that the flying saucer, a.k.a. Disco Volante, is parked presumably nearby and it's this super advanced yacht with all you know we've seen the communications system in there um and presumably they knew that bond and felix were swimming alongside when bond came in and felix was locked out so presumably they can see what's going on around them but no here's these like guys and rocket packs just sort of floating along uh and they don't notice the submarine uh, that's probably just a few hundred mm-hmm. yards away. We don't know. Uh, so that was a, a quote-unquote action scene that didn't quite work. Um, I will say that the fight in the health spa, pretty good. Um, not great. They they ended with a dumb joke uh, with the James Bond urine mm-hmm. specimen. Uh, but I like the location. And I like that it had sort of a, a real-world feel to it. Um, other than that, not really. <laughs> well, and I'd say the health spa one, it lasts too long. You know, it, Yes. It, it, it you, does. Yeah, it goes yeah. on a bit. And I would say yeah. that's par for the course for this movie. It's too long. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And so yeah. Um, I honestly I can't remember any of the action sequences. I mean, you mentioned ones, but I'm like, hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That happened. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the the uh, I, I can't even describe <laughs> the 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 feeling of of seeing them fly up out of missiles into these weird. I what is uh, that? They had jetpacks. <laughs> uh, it don't even know. Yeah. yeah, what they're thinking in that. So, um. Anyway. Yeah. I think it's time to just get to our ratings here with Never Say Never Again and um. Where are you guys with this movie? So I I think that there were definitely some situations that made me uncomfortable in this movie. Um, and I, I did rem- remember as well, the one specific mention to me of Bond's age was when uh, the nurse that was supposed to take his urine sample looked like she was 12. And I was worried that they were going to sleep yeah. together. And I was like, no, no. <laughs> uh, yeah. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the massage scene and then the dancing, watching through a two-way mirror scene. It just, there were a lot of things like that that I was going, why are you doing this to me? Um, but I think that there were some nice moments here and there. I've said, you know, that I did like um, Kim Basinger alongside Bond in this movie. Um, 
but overall, I think it just kind of feels meh. So I, I give it a five out of 10 jetpacks. Um, I think that it's severely lacking specifically with the music. I think that would have done so much more for this, even not using things that they weren't allowed to use. They could have come up with a new theme and then used that often um, or something that fit the scenes and the emotion better. Um, and then, like we all mentioned, the writing was just kind of meh as well. And can we talk about that? Because it's Lorenzo Simple Jr. who wrote the screenplay. He has some of the best one-liners in his uh, Flash Gordon uh, screenplay. Of course, he wrote a ton of Batman 66. Uh, so the guy knows what he's doing, but then it's like, well, for this, are you being given direction to write a Bond movie? Or are you being given direction to write a generic action-adventure movie? Or is it a comedy? Like, what is it? What are we landing on here? So there are good moments in this script, but... Uh, the thing for me is at the end of the day, Connery is not connected to the material. And that that just sounds so weird to say because Connery is slash was Bond. Connery defined the on-screen Bond, but then all good things come to an end and somebody else is going to play Bond and it gets redefined and reinvented and that's okay. But you would think that 11, 12 years later, you bring back this guy and, and you're going to hit Paydirt again, but they just don't. Um, and, and I think that's one of the biggest problems with it. Um, I think Kim Basinger's great. I think uh, Klaus Mira Brandauer is great. Uh, Max von Sydow is great. Love Bernie Casey. Love Barbara Carrera. But you've got a Bond that doesn't connect to the material. You've got an M who just wrecks all of our respect for MI6. Uh, you've got a Q who I think should be a different character um, because, it, again, it's just, it's played for laughs in a way that doesn't quite make sense. Like, why are we detouring for this comedy? We know what the Q scenes feel like in other movies. It, it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't come together. Soundtrack is a huge problem here. Um, I was going to say, you know what? I, I would give it... Uh, Oh, man. There are moments here that I like. I, we didn't talk about the video game. I, I come, For some weird reason, I enjoy the scene with the video game, even though it's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> but but, but I, I love it. Um, I was going to say that I would give this two and a half uh, uh, projectile firing uh, Union Jack fountain pens. But because I love that pen, I'll give it another point. So I'll land at three and a half. Mm, wow. Wow. Um I feel like we've we've talked about it all. Um and it's just a mediocre movie with mediocre direction and a mediocre story and a mediocre cast in many of the plot points in the sense that nobody's giving a performance here that makes you want to, you know, tell people oh you got to see this movie because even though the story's not great man so-and-so gives a great performance like there's just there's nothing good or special about this movie um that makes you want to really watch it again and part of that is because they can never overcome the biggest problem which is they are hampered that they are not an official bond movie 
there are some things that are better here. And, and I would say this movie is probably slightly better than Octopussy. I agree. Like a side to side. But it's still not a very good movie because neither is Octopussy. So um, to me, this is is two out of five peekaboo windows. Uh, it's just a very bad um, attempt at doing Bond when, you know, I think we pointed out some places where they could really have taken it and made it their own and uh, really added something to Bond. And they just don't do that. And it's disappointing in the movie. But... It is time for recommendations. And so this is where we recommend to you something that we've been watching or reading or listening to or, um, you know, TV, movie, book, whatever. Uh, So, Christy, I'm interested in what your recommendation is this week. I'm really excited about mine. And it's so weird because you look at me and you wouldn't think that I would be excited about this kind of thing. But... Uh, not many people know, my husband does, but, uh, that I am really into hip hop and R&B and we've been watching Wu-Tang and American Saga on Hulu and it's incredible. So I highly suggest everybody watch it. Uh, it's not a documentary about the Wu-Tang clan. It's a, um, fictional drama, but, um, reflects a lot of the things that they went through, um, from the get go of you know, trying to get a career and then um, we haven't gotten further yet. So we're still at the beginning, but it episode one through three, we've already finished and they're an hour long each. <laughs> so I love it. You should watch it. Uh, John, anything that you would like to recommend to the listeners? Sure. Well, I mean, there's the perennial, which is, uh, you know, we, we mentioned in this show, uh, The Man from Uncle, and, and I just feel like if you're a Bond fan uh, and you like this period like I do, definitely go watch the original series and check out the movie from 2015 that Guy Ritchie directed. But that that goes without saying. Like, if you've heard me on this show long enough, you know that I will recommend that. I'm going to recommend something really weird, and uh, Christy, I have you to thank for this because you were talking about Wu-Tang Clan, talking about uh, hip-hop. Also, not a big hip-hop fan, I'm going to blow your minds and introduce you to something new to me, probably new to you, chap-hop. Okay, so I will recommend that you go download uh, albums by Professor Elemental, and picture, if you will, British colonial steampunk science fiction hip-hop okay there there i've I've said it and i I have downloaded probably four of his albums in the last three days listen to them all and uh, i fun storytelling first of all very talented uh and just a weird mishmash of styles and time periods i think you will find it very okay Awesome. Man. Glad I inspired you guys are that. Way cooler than I am. <laughs> um, so, I actually have a, just a, a couple things because I started watching uh, Ken Burns' new film, uh, Country Music, which is, I, I'm on the first episode, but I'm finding it fascinating already about how country music came to be. Um, and even if you don't like country music, it's such a, it's just a story of, America, the way that we take things and we make them our own and and make them into something new um, that, you know, so 
really interested to see um, where that goes. And it's just been, uh, I mean, you know, they have some great country music stars on there. People like, um, you know, uh, Dolly Parton or Garth yes. Brooks or, you know, and, and smaller people too from, you know, country music uh, from all over the country as well. So it's not just the South, but people that have been involved in country music in almost every part of the United States, which is interesting. Um, and then I went and saw Ad Astra with Brad Pitt um, and very interesting movie. Um, I think it's uh, akin to kind of like a 2001 Space Odyssey in the sense that it's it's much more deliberate. It's a character study. Um, it is thematically interesting uh, on the idea of human connection and especially human connection between parents and children, sons and fathers, um, and uh, just the, the reason why human connection is important. And so I enjoyed it. I thought it was really interesting, and it's definitely one that I was glad I saw on the big screen because, you know, when you're seeing a movie – that takes place in space. Um, I love being able to see that kind of thing on the biggest screen. So mm-hmm. um, that for me was, was just fascinating. So um, we really, though, I just want to say uh, thank you to everybody uh, through Patreon who's supporting us. Our, and of course, our associate producers here on the show, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Wyam Millette, and Daniel Noah for uh, helping make sure that everything here on the 602 Club and the Track of Them Network keeps coming to each week. It's a massive undertaking to put all of these things out each and every week. And and honestly, there's no way we can do it without your help, without your financial support. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can become part of our team. We have some great contribution levels. Every little bit helps, but we've got some levels where you can give it certain um, areas and you get extra perks. So again, go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and help make sure all the shows here on the network keep coming to you. Uh, John, so great to have you back here on the show. Uh, what else have you got going on these days? Man, what a thrill to talk about uh, the the black sheep of the Bond, <laughs> the black sheep of the Bond family. Uh, that was quite a trip. Um, you know, you can find me at the Roddenberry Podcast Network, podcast.roddenberry.com. Uh, that's where I do my, my sort of my main shows, Mission Log, Mission Log Live, and I produce the Trek files over there. Um, and a lot of other stuff going. We keep adding and kind of playing with the lineup. So go check out podcast.roddenberry.com. And uh, other than that, you know, uh, just, uh, just, just having fun. Uh, if you want to follow my personal exploits, Instagram, J champ 72 or slow-mo gentleman i said that slower to to emphasize slow-mo gentleman and you want to see that one for sure (laughs) (laughs) for sure well thank you you're welcome uh and you can find me on a couple of other shows when i'm not here on the 602 club with matt i also do a show once a month um, called Planet Leia on the Fanthatrax network. Um, and actually coming soon will be an interview I did with Dr. Annalise Ophelian that did the documentary Looking for Leia. Uh, so you'll want to hear that for sure. I also am on um, a show called Sabres and Spells. I co-host with my friend Teresa, where we talk about um, anything geeky that we feel like, uh, late, it, lately, I see we did Umbrella Academy and Stranger Things season three, and we're discussing what we're going to do next. Maybe it'll be cosplay related. Maybe it'll be 
role-playing games. We're not sure. Uh, and then last but not least, I do um, a five-minute segment called Fashion in Five on the Star Wars Report once a month. So I hope you'll check that out too. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bell, and usually in the Babel Conference. Well, and you can find me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Vero under the name MattRushing02. I'm here in the network when uh, Chris Jones and I can get the opportunity. We do uh, The Orb, uh, which is all about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I am on the Nerd Party Network doing two shows. One's called Owl Post with Drea Kaufman as we're talking through each and every chapter of the Harry Potter series. We're just beginning the Half-Blood Prince, which really excited to dive into that. I'm doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills, talking about all things Star Wars. So if you like Star Wars, it's the place for you. And then last but not least, doing the show called Cinema Stories. My good friend Courtney, as we talk about films, but through the ones of faith. Uh, And uh, yeah, 250 episodes. So thank you so much for joining us. Nice. And y'all come back now you hear. here.